This is Hard Rock Saves the Space Dandy, a retro science fiction podcast focused on multimedia from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1. This season, we'll be taking a look at the works of director Kawajiri Yoshiaki, uh, a few select works starting with Cyber City 080808. Then next episode, we'll be taking a look at Wicked City, and the final episode of the season will be Demon City Shinjuku. And before I forget, I'm your host, Dave, and without further ado, uh, let's begin the episode. Beginning with this season and moving forward, I'd like to um, take the time uh, each episode to make a little bit more of a comparison between the main media I'm covering and a a related title or something with similar themes, um, either in film, uh, animated uh, show, or uh, in this case, uh, in the, well, in this season, we'll be kind of covering all three of the book form as well. Um, an example will be with Cyber City Oedo, um, the nature of the OVA series is, um, well, it lends itself to uh, comparing at least three other forms of media. And as a three-part structure, I'll be making the best use of that as I, uh, as I can. Uh, what we'll do is the first OVA, episode one, uh, we'll be comparing with the episode one of the original Dirty Pair TV series from 1985. For OVA two, we'll also be taking a parallel look at the third OVA from the AD Police Files, uh, which also came out in 1990. With OVA 3, we'll be contrasting that with Vampire Hunter D from 1985. And moving forward with the, um, f- the future episodes, uh, we'll be doing something similar. So as I cover um, Wicked City, I'll also be looking at the Hong Kong live-action release. And finally, to wrap up the season... Uh, when we take a look at Demon City Shinjuku, uh, we'll also be covering the um, the original novel as well. I think that doing it this way um, will give a better framework to the show, as well as you know, providing me with a little bit more context uh, to discuss uh, during the episode. That way, if any of these need to be a little bit shorter, or I'm just pressed for time, the content is a little bit more solid and I'm not rehashing some of the same topics within, within a single episode. So we'll move forward and see how it works out. Let's begin at the beginning with episode one of cyber city. 080808. This, uh, this series is set in the far off future of 2808. Um, fittingly enough, that's, I guess where the 808 comes from in the title. Uh, the episode one was memories of the past. It was released in 1990 on June 21st. The general plot for the show centers on three prisoners that have been released from an orbital prison uh, in order to hunt down cyber criminals. Um, What that really means is I think it's left a little bit open for debate as some of these criminals they're hunting down don't appear to be doing cyber crimes, but uh, <laughs> I guess we'll get into that in the later episodes. The first episode, uh, I would say this is probably a cyber crime. So what they what they've done um, for the episodes is center each of the episodes around one of these um, prisoners, 
and I think that works to pretty good effect because you're you're given um, the entire runtime of the episode to get to know the personality of each of these uh, anti-heroes, and the other the other two play bit parts um, within the episode, so they're all you know given their time to shine and sort of show us maybe why they were picked as uh, these hunters or dogs as the uh, <laughs> the show likes to refer to them as. The OBAs also go through the trouble of introducing each of the characters in the opening credits and showing a little list, like a little bio that pops up um, detailing their particular crimes and what they were sentenced to. Uh, I believe each of them were, were imprisoned for well over 300 years um, in the orbital prison, and they've, they've been let out on parole, uh, as it were. Our, our first prisoner is uh, Shinsuke Sengoku, and each of them are also uh, given a, um, a little handle or, or a nickname. So uh, Shinsuke goes by the handle of Sengoku. He's a well, he's 25 years old and has accomplished quite a bit in his uh, relatively short life and also looks a little bit older than 25, but that's uh, a, a trope I think that most of these shows deal with. Uh, we'll also get a similar... Um, trend with, with at least one of the other prisoners. Sengoku himself, uh, he, he's been convicted of murder, assault, unlawful possession of weapons, traffic violations, disturbing the peace, endangering public welfare, forgery of currency, forgery of bonds and data, computer fraud, breaking database law, resisting arrest, and he's been sentenced to 375 years uh, for those particular crimes. Um... What, it, what the show doesn't do is go into any further detail on, on their backstories aside from this brief uh, bullet pointing of their, of their crimes. And so we don't know, were those all at once? Were those over a period of time? Um, I, it would be interesting to see, uh, maybe in a manga form, um, a detailing of, of maybe some of these events and what ultimately led um, their their handler, Juzo Hasegawa, to uh, pick them and why their crimes have suited, have made them, made them suitable uh, to act as hunters of other criminals. I, I don't see anything in this list that sp- specifically would pick out um, Sengoku to, to qualify him <laughs> as the... Um, the hunter that he ends up being, at least in episode one. Um, all three of these men are capable uh, in what they do, at least as, as far as we're, we're shown. And, and that's that's not bad, because it, it showing rather than telling, you know, it's, it's more effective um, in, in this storytelling format. So just having, you know, this list is, I guess that's fine. Um, the problem we run into is the list of the other prisoners is similar, uh, and we'll we'll cover the, each of those respectively in their in their episodes. So this episode one, um, memories of the past. Uh, each of these titles in 
is in some way this is what's what is good is that each of these titles is related to something in the show and it's not just like a throwaway uh phrasing as we saw in um season one back with uh Iria, the uh ovas the the titles were referenced only to um the concept artwork that had been done so they really didn't have anything to do directly with the episodes um these do and that's just a nice change of pace um particularly given that this came out before um Iria. and what we'll also be doing is tying in um really I mean, directly some of the visuals and plot points that happen in this uh, also have taken place in the first episode of the Dirty Pair uh, TV series back in 1985. And that was, we'll teach you how to kill a computer. And I'll, I'll cover those as they occur um, a little bit later on. It would also be remiss of me not to mention that uh, as part of the agreement for these three prisoners to work with... Uh, Hasegawa, they have um, they have agreed that per each of the criminals that they apprehend, uh, some years it's up to it's it's random, I guess, <laughs> maybe on the value of the prisoner that they've captured. But uh, each one that they capture reduces their sentence um, by a little bit. We you know we find out. Uh, an example is one of the first. Uh, Criminals that Sengoku captures takes three years off of his sentence. Uh, well, three years off of 375 isn't great. Um, and even Sengoku realizes that and asks his... Uh, they're, they're, each of them are saddled with a specific uh, robo-overseer sort of partner, I guess. Um, this is Varsis. It's a mobile computer on... I guess he's on wheels. He just kind of rolls around. Um, looks like a filing cabinet. And he... Maybe he's acting as their parole officer. It's, it's not super clear. But um, Sengoku specifically asks Varsus, like, how, how many, you know, he catches the criminal and he's uh, asking Varsus, how many years is that knocking off my sentence? And, you know, he tells him, Varsus tells him three years. And so not wanting to do the math um Sengoku is like oh, how many more guys do I have to capture um you know before my sentence is uh commuted and Varsus really doesn't give an answer and we find out later that the the some really points but the amount of value in the criminals is different and depending on um Sengoku's actions years can be added on to his sentence so I guess that's not um, not great for Sengoku anyway. And of course, that, that plus or minus um, sentencing isn't the only thing that these, um, these three gentlemen have to deal with. They are also uh, all outfitted with um, exploding collars uh, that uh, serve as the method of control um, from Hasegawa. But not only that, they... They serve as a point of contact because there's a two-way radio device um, embedded in the collars, allowing them to, to receive in instructions um, and talk back to um, Hasegawa uh, during their missions. So that's one of the 
the technological marvels of the year 2808. <laughs> there's a, there's a few other things that crop up um, that I thought were pretty amusing, as it, you know this was released in um, 1990. So some of the futurisms are um, by now a little bit uh, they're almost anachronistic, and and that that's fine. It's uh, fun. 80s or I guess late 80s early 90s um cyberpunk action so it's a lot of it's all aesthetic and that's that's okay uh-huh. uh oh, oh the um the control method for the explode or I guess the explosive device that the trigger um for that as well as the settings um I don't know it's a <laughs> little it's, this is not hard to explain. It's just weird. Um, so Hasegawa controls and sets the specific, it's like a timer um, on the collars that he can turn off and on and reset and whatever. Um, but it's all through his cigarette lighter. And th- there doesn't appear to be any buttons on it. Or there's maybe like one button. And he'll, for dramatic effect, uh, during the missions, you know, tell, tell in each of the prisoners, like, you have eight hours to complete the mission and you'll just press a button and there's a little digital timer on the side of the lighter that like pops up and it'll it'll start counting down from eight hours or he'll say you have 24 hours or you know any any number example works but he i don't know is it voice activated it's super ambiguous and i want to know how you press one button and set something to like some amount of hours um and it doesn't really matter it's it's just a cool looking thing um but it doesn't hold up to much scrutiny and, and unless it were specifically voice activated and you maybe he's holding it down and saying eight hours and then it knows to pick eight hours i don't know um just something i it's not even something that i noticed it just pops up so often that you kind of have to question it um well the plot of the first episode is pretty straightforward so sengoku is uh activated i don't know what you want to call it he's sent out on a mission because a supercomputer that controls some amount of the city uh and i think it's most of the city or it controls the city and uh, it's not clear it has a large effect on many people um has run amok and it's it's within a giant um, uh, space. They call it a space scraper. It's a skyscraper, but it's extending into the I guess upper atmospheres. Um, so this particular building, regardless of how much it controls, it's containing uh, I believe it's like fifty something like fifty thousand people um, are within the building. And uh, the the computer has taken them hostage, but not not given any kind of demands. There's no real communication with it, other than uh, people can't get past a certain uh, level in the tower um, because of automated defenses that the the tower has set up. Well, they they find out um, that the potential suspect um, of this heinous crime is uh, Yoshi, uh, Yoshikazu Amachi. Uh, he was the building designer of the space's scraper and um, he may be 
either in the building or somewhere else remotely um, hacking the uh, the mainframe um, in order to, to threaten all these people, I guess. Um, but the police also find out that uh, there's a, a gentleman by the name of Dave Kurokawa who is the main computer programmer or was the main computer programmer of the um, space scraper and now he's the system supervisor. Uh, he's one of the few left alive um, in, in the top floors and he's, it turns out, sequestered himself um, in his office and it's up to uh, our good uh, our good buddy Sengoku to infiltrate the building and rescue the hostages or take out the computer or any 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 of the above. Um, he eventually does meet up with uh, Kurokawa, and we come to find out that uh, Mr. Kurokawa was jealous of his it was his buddy um, Yoshikazu, and in his fit of jealousy, um, he murdered the um, building designer, kind of tossed him over a, a, a stairwell. He just tossed him tossed him off a like ledge inside the building and he tumbled down through some uncountable number of stories and then presumably was killed. But it's the, the ghost of um, Yoshikazu that has been threatening him and uh, our, our first reveal of uh, Kurokawa is he's you know he's sitting in his office he's kind of sweating because the, the building has been locked down and across his computer monitors it says kill you, kill you, kill you. It's like the the computers itself threatening him and he's he's afraid of that and that's why he's locked himself in his office and cut off all other outside communications um mostly to prevent the, the haywire computer from like murdering him somehow so Sengoku as I said he, he meets up with them or he sneaks in through the air vents um in the building, there's a few mishaps he has with uh, some of the, the cleaner robots uh, running around in the vents. Um, that ends up being a little bit humorous. And uh, he meets with Amachi, and, or not Amachi, I'm sorry, he meets with Kurokawa. And through that interaction, discovers that uh, um, Kurokawa is afraid that this whole mess um, is uh, Amachi coming back to to enact revenge for you know the murder 15 years ago everyone's kind of scoffing at this because if the guy was murdered he's and he's been dead he's not you know just living in the building for 15 years <laughs> waiting for his revenge so they're um kind of doing that you know trace the signal back to its source and um we get the uh i think it's hasegawa ends up telling him, oh, the signal's coming from inside the building. Or, I don't think it was Hasego, actually. It's uh, um, one of the other prisoners, uh, Goggles, is in the build, or he's in the lower portion of the building where they've kind of set up a um, uh, on-site headquarters um, for the the investigation. And he's battling against uh, the mainframe, trying to hack into it and stop it from wrecking havoc in the city or elsewhere or in the building. And he um, discovers that the the source of the the hacking, because at this point they didn't realize or they don't know where it's coming from, it could be outside the building. And he realizes it's he pinpoints it and lets um, Sengoku know that it's on a specific floor, 
So Zengoku is rushing around the building to, uh, to, to get to where the, the source of the signal is and hopefully stop the, uh, the havoc that's about to be unleashed. Um, and havoc, uh, it is because the, the computer or the, um, hacker has, uh, taken control of an orbital satellite, uh, and is set on like blasting the, the office that, uh, um, Kurokawa is in to get, get rid of him that way. Um, it previously it had, uh, taken control of a, I don't know if it was a, it's like a helicopter kind of thing. It's a, I don't know, some sort of flying ship and smashed that into the office, but it wasn't unable to kill him that way because, um, Sengoku was able to intervene, um, on the programmer's behalf, but there's not much they can do to stop a, uh, orbital laser from firing aside from trying to counter hack it and um, prevent it from shooting that way the um, the other thing it ends up doing is uh, turning off the because the, the tower is super huge so it's it's being um, held in place by a uh, gyro stabilizer um, something within the building is, is spinning uh, to counteract the forces of gravity and kind of keep it from wobbling or just collapsing under its own weight. But the the computer, or the hacking thing, turns off the stabilizer so the tower just, just starts to lilt ever so slightly, just <laughs> tipping under its own weight. Um, there's also a, a short moment where one of the other... Um, cyber police members they're just like there's general employees that work for that organization um but this is a okio uh, junoichi um she i guess she's like an office assistant it's not really clear on what she does she files reports um and she's in there just trying to evacuate some of the um civilians in the building earlier but they're all trapped in an elevator because the, the power was shut off well, the computer hacker tries to use that as leverage against Sengoku, and in order to prevent him from uh, continuing his ascent inside the tower, uh, turns off the the brakes, I guess, um, for that elevator that they're all in, and it's, it's plummeting to the ground, and um, Goggles has to counteract that and activate the, I guess, the hand, the manual brakes on it. Um but that, I mean, that's kind of it for other activities that happen. Um, it all sort of culminates in a showdown uh, between Sengoku and what we find out is the mummified, desiccated body of uh, Yoshi, Yoshikazu Amachi, who, although he fell to his death, ended up, like, crashing into some sort of... Um, I don't know if it's a specific room, but part of the mainframe computer, like, merged with him. It's like he's, his corpse is riddled with all these um, cables. And his dying wishes, I don't know, I guess the, maybe the electronic impulses in his in his dying mind, that sense of uh, craving for revenge was transmitted into the computer. Um, 
and maybe his memories because it's specifically calling for the the death of Kurokawa. So he's you know he's become the ghost in the machine um, <laughs> to to make you know I guess direct comparisons and uh, so that 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 leaves a the showdown between um, Sengoku and the cyber mummy <laughs> uh, who the, the latter is able to control um, wires and use them as like, sort of harpoons to try to spear um, Sengoku and it's using a um, like a movement pro- action prediction program and mathematically cataloging the 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 chances of Sengoku moving from one place to another, it's able to predict like his every movement uh, and how Sengoku um, circumvents this is he just simply doesn't do any of the evasive moves. He just keeps walking forward and all the spear tentacles like miss and he gets close enough to shoot the, uh, the, the brain pan of uh, the mummy and, and, and the, and the sort of, hacking scourge um i don't know it's it felt it was a little bit anticlimactic but um the concept i guess was cool and i don't know that's why i watched this in the, in the first place um so i guess the one the the to get i get into the comparisons uh that these are going to be specifically direct um in the the first episode of dirty pair they, um, Kay and Yuri, the, the lovely angels, they're the dirty parent question. They are tasked with, um, stopping the master computer, uh, uh, of Eleanor city. Um, it's the master computer is known as, um, Brian, which is, I'm sure they just messed around with brain and went with that. But, um, it, the, the master computer in, in that sense was, sort of upset with humans in, in general, um, not any one particular person. Uh, the, the people that designed it, and um, because this computer is in control of the city, um, all of the functions from the sewage, uh, heating and cooling systems, electricity, the transmission of data, it's, it's, it's the brain of the city. Um, more or less, but because it's in, it has so much power in, you know, in one thing, the designers, you know, built in a, a back door, I guess, as you do this Z box that, um, if activated would just completely shut down, um, the, the, the mainframe. Well, the mainframe discovered this and wasn't, uh, understandably, I guess, too happy since it's a fairly, um, robust AI, and decided to instead um, destroy the humanity in its reach uh, in, in retaliation for that um, threat that they posed on its um, existence. So, basically, that has, it's the same sort of plot. The Kay and Yuri have to enter the tower and get to the... Uh, the mainframe and destroy it before it destroys the city. Well, they find out that it, 
it has a sensitivity to cold, um, and they they end up trying to fire a. They, I think it's their ship. They get their ship to to fire at it. Um, has nothing to do with the cold, but that's what they. I mentioned it, and they thought about it. But um, they get their their ship to fire a cannon. So that's the comparison to the orbital cannon. Um, instead, targeted at the the building instead of the just the. Well, I guess the other one was targeted at the building too. So there you go. <laughs> they're both targeted at the building, but. Um, the since they're trying to fire at directly at the the mainframe the computer times the like it it knows the moment they're going to shoot the cannon and times the rotations on its huge data disk drives um but there's portions of the the drive that are like i guess magnetic shielding and the the disc kind of rotates in place, and one of those shielding portions ends up covering its uh, core. And so when the laser comes in, it's reflected by that shielding bit and um, is, is dispersed, or maybe it's just redirected, but it, it doesn't um, damage the mainframe. So what they end up doing instead is, uh, because this is the dirty pair and they kind of overkill anything or by accident or more by design. Um, in this case, it's sort of by design. Uh, they set a transport ship to have warp coordinates um, equal to the interior of the, the mainframe, and they just warp a small transport ship into it, which it, which destroys it because it's occup- occupying the same space. Um, what this does is it causes that tower um, to completely lean over and uh, the the Damocles tower that this computer is in is left leaning for the rest of the series but the fact that they're using a what amounts to an orbital laser and the tower is completely like left leaning over uh, both of these things like scene for scene almost happen within um, Cyber City 080808 and I don't, I don't think you can like deny that there's a, a specific comparison to that. Um, I think it's pretty neat. It, uh, I, I found this actually by accident, <laughs> just as I wanted to, to cover um, Dirty Pair in, in partner and whole uh, further down the line. And I was just watching some of the episodes out of nostalgia, nostalgia's sake, I guess. And then I realized, oh, look, they're, they're doing almost the exact same plot. Um, in episode one of Dirty Pair, as in OVA one of uh, Cyber City, and figured I'd like to share that. And if there's other things I may have missed or later comparisons um, in the series, uh, I'll, I'll try to find them out. Or if, if any of the listeners know of them offhand, um, let me know because I'll end up taking a look at them that way. And I think that um, that that wraps up uh, the first OVA of. Uh, Cyber City 808. Which brings us to episode two, Lure Program. Uh, this was released on the 28th of December 1990, and I'll be comparing uh, a few aspects of it to uh, the 80 Police Files uh, third OVA, The Man Who Bites His Tongue, which was released uh, slightly previous in um, 
November 22nd of 1990. And also, both of those owe a nod to Robocop, uh, which came out in 1987. And before moving on, I would like to point out that all three of the protagonists, uh, they have been issued jute uh, by the Cybercrimes Police Division, I guess. Uh, and those are symbols of their their position uh, as, well, they're not reformed criminals, but criminals that have been empowered to um, catch other criminals. This is in reference to inspectors, uh, royal guards, and um, other other positions of authority in the Edo period had been um, given these specific uh, their their weapons, uh, and it's a, it's a baton with a hooked uh, prong uh, on one side. Um, originally, these were handed out to palace guards because there was a prohibition on bladed weaponry um, entering the palace and this this allowed them to still function in their position mm, and be armed uh, but not defy that particular ordinance and those eventually came to represent the authority they'd been they'd been granted and that's what that's what we see here um, in this OVA series so on with our our main protagonist this uh, episode uh, that's Goggles uh, that's his alias he's uh, Gabimaru uh, Rikia and of the of the three gentlemen he's the oldest at the venerable ripe age of 28 years old going on 40 uh, he, he he clearly looks or he's drawn to be much older than the other two um, prisoners now uh, here's his list of crimes and it doesn't diverge um, very, very far from what we had seen in Sengoku's um, list. So we have murder, assault, destruction of public and private property, possession of illegal weapons, disturbing the peace, violation of city bylaws, and violation of criminal regulations. Uh, he's sentenced to 310 years uh, due to those crimes, and none of which... I think really represent the abilities, the talents, and the things that make him noteworthy as a cyber criminal catcher. Um, much as in, in the same way as Sengoku really wasn't uh, defined by his crimes. And I, mean, I guess that's a good thing. They're not... Uh, like I mean, they're, they're archetypes in their own right, uh, a piece, but um, they're not strictly defined by role of anti-hero or previous criminal and that it would have been nicer to see that some of their past exploits um, fit what they were kind of selected to do um, in this instance uh, goggles of the of the trio is m- most proficient I believe at um, actually doing cyber criminal activities or what we would define those today it's as we mentioned it's ambiguous um, in this series what the cybercrimes division is sort of um, in control of curtailing 
Um, Goggles is good at hacking. And we, we're not told that. We see that. So that's, I think, where the description of their <clears throat> sentences diverges with the actual criminal. Or Goggles the man versus Goggles the, the rap sheet. So while not covering every little plot point of this OVA episode, the first thing that we find in this um in this episode really is uh goggles um being sent out to retrieve and i guess dead or alive or or silence a um fellow cyber crimes division operative um this is yamavana taku um goggles encounters him in a dilapidated building he's um you know Taku is hiding out, and we find him in the middle of an operation where he's uh, attempting to remove his own explosive collar. Goggles doesn't make any real attempt to um, stop him at this point. Uh, he's Taku is immobilized. He's sitting in a a chair with uh, mechanical surgical um, instruments, uh, remotely working on them, removing the fuses from the collar. And there's, uh, I believe it was seven fuses. They, they weren't playing around, so there's not just one fuse to, to explode you. There's multiple, and um, they're all appear to be like backups or redundant um, devices inside there. So Taku is sweatily um, and nervously trying to remove the, the fuses so he doesn't kill himself in the process. And uh, Goggles basically just says, hey, if you if you succeed in, you know, getting that off of you, uh, I'm next. You know, take my collar off, too, and we'll, we'll go from there. Um, unfortunately, uh, Taku is unsuccessful and decapitates himself with the um, with the collar. And through this exchange, we can sort of get a better handle on on the man that goggles is he's not loyal to a fault at least in terms of his um, servitude to the um, agency uh, he's willing to use that power to benefit himself but at the same time you know he's he's showing a I guess a display of empathy and compassion um, towards taku who he I think it mentions that they, they had known each other, um, so they could be part of it. But um, the fact that he's willing to collude with him, and I'm pretty sure their callers have those um, two-way radios on them, so I don't know if that's always on, and the agency can just hear what they're saying. But if that's the case, then they he was at risk of just having his caller remotely detonated. So that's another, I guess, one of those plot points we can we can chalk up to being similar to the remote-controlled um, timing device on the, on, the, on the lighter. But what we're also um, shown here is occurring at the same time, or at least tangentially, with um, this scene. We have a... What would have, I guess, been the cold open in, in any other show where... There is a criminal, uh, Takagi, on the run from something. Uh, it's uh, 
some sort of large figure um, that they're at the point taking pains to kind of conceal in the shadows, uh, giving that antagonist uh, effect and not fully showing the the villain of the piece. So that, that's what this ends up being. But um, uh, Takagi's on the run and he's in an alleyway and he gets caught up against a fence. Uh, and while trying to climb the fence, uh, a large cybernetic arm comes launching out of the darkness um, on a, like a telescoping uh, frame, I guess. <laughs> Extendo arms is what he is being attacked by. And uh, he, so that, that, that arrests his um, attempt to escape, but it's not done. Uh, we get another treatment of flashes of light and the bits of the antagonist is kind of, sort of revealed in these um, these little flourishes and we see tubing pumping some sort of red viscous fluid and the shine of uh, thick armor and it turns out that this is uh, some sort of suit some armored suit that the figure is wearing and these tubes of fluid begin like furiously pumping and what that's we're led to believe is doing is some um, sort of amplifying some sort of weapon the the head of the, the the figure part of it opens up and there's a little hole and an invisible wave of energy is released crushing uh Takagi against the, the, the fence and kind of bending and warping the metal. So this is some sort of psychic attack um, amplified by those, uh, whatever that liquid is in the tubes. And of course the viewer isn't left hanging for too long. We get a little bit of exposition um, courtesy of the uh, cyber police folks and um, Juzo, our, our handler of the, uh, of the three boys. And what it turns out to be is the uh, the, the criminal was murdered um, as a, a test for a type A protection suit from the, um, I guess maybe it's the Isaka version of the suit. And to, to investigate that, they send in the third uh, of our prisoners, um, Benton, who... who has his time in the spotlight in the in the, the final uh, OVA episode, but here he's seen running around um, he's basically he's doing an investigation into um, a lot of the I think it's his former contacts he may have had when he's worked in his previous criminal enterprises and it owes a lot to um Blade Runner uh, that that's what a lot of this evokes and he's dealing with um, ethnic transplants um, other immigrants in the the Oedo underground and um, as for an example one of them is a, a body parts trafficker he's clearly modeled off of merchant dealing in Chinese medicine and to contrast uh, to the character in um, Blade Runner, instead of dealing in um, eyes, he's 
literally dealing in, um, well, body parts wholesale, I guess. So it's arms and legs and torsos. Um, there's a, I guess a small, it would be a joke. They, um, they're, he's in broad daylight and they're loading the back of a delivery van with, um, crates and, uh, one of the crates tips over and you know, spills body parts out under the street. Um, it's, I don't know, it's, maybe it's meant to be funny. It's really just kind of grotesque. And, um, uh, you know, Ben 10 makes a, makes a point of saying, you know, oh, really, you're, you're, you're doing this in broad daylight. Um, but uh, it, it turns out that, this as far as I can tell, uh, the, the trafficker is selling these parts to the military. And that's the, the main, um, well, the main antagonist is, is really the military uh, deploying this armored suit um, in a testing phase uh, to, to mass produce it, I, I guess. They don't, um, they don't clarify some of the finer points, but uh, it's, it's enough, I think, to, to, to make that assumption and not feel uh, too far off base. I guess to tie things a little further together, um, the, the earlier criminal who had been um, trying to deactivate his own collar, he, um, he wasn't fleeing the organization uh, out of the blue. It turns out he had been selling um, the Cyber Crimes Division uh, not really secrets, but their, their data um, to an unknown um, buyer that unknown buyer also turns out to be the same military that's developing this uh, powered suit. And part of that data uh, included the um, personnel files, I guess, of the of our, our three uh, protagonists. So that, that proves to be a, a plot point that um, comes back to, uh, I guess, haunt uh, goggles a little later on. But right now... Uh, after gathering that data, Ben 10 and Sengoku end up uh, infiltrating the military base. Now they don't have a warrant, so they're, well, I say infiltrating, they're sneaking in um, through the, I think it's like a sluice gate, which is on a timer, and it's eight hours or so before before it opens back up again. They don't make it before it closes, and they're just kind of stuck waiting around for however many hours, um, just biding their time. And it's, uh, I guess it wouldn't make for exciting cinema. So, of course, we cut away uh, while they're just hanging out there in the sort of sub-basement to, um, to back to Goggles. And while he is the, the, the mainstay for the episode, um, it will, we'll end up kind of flicking back to um, Sengoku and Ben Ten's little misadventures um, with the military base later on. So the... The main thrust, I guess, of the this small... It's not even the interlude, the interlude's the other part. Um, Goggles uh, encounters an old uh, partner of his, um, Sarah, and he's hiding her from the the military in investigation team that's that's looking for her because there's been a, a, a hacking incident um, on the base. And uh, it turns out since she had stolen military secrets but unbeknownst to goggles at this time she was caught in that attempt it was actually a uh it's not 
it's not catfishing. Um, it's what's well, the the data lure of the of the title. Um, the 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 things that she was was caught taking were kind of plants. They they wanted someone to catch. Um, I guess they wanted to catch someone in the act of doing that, so they could use it to blackmail them. And it turns out that um, due to the uh, personnel files they had um, the military like actively tricked uh, I guess they were seeking Sarah out specifically because she was um, Goggle's old old partner and all, all of this is in a bid to um, put Goggles in a position where they could uh, test their new suit against him in in one on one combat it's um, a little contrived, but uh, it works, I guess. <laughs> a lot, a lot of, a lot of things to, you have to do and hope goes right in order to have one, one small battle. And while all of those little things end up going right, um, some things do not, and that's where uh, we find the Sarah has a change of heart. Uh, she didn't really want to. I mean, she's being blackmailed. She wasn't doing this willingly in the first place, so she ends up. Um, sacrificing herself in order to get give goggles more time i guess he's just buying him time against the the armored suit i think in her hope was to just kill it she tries to ram a truck into the uh well what ends up being like a robocop stand-in um if robocop was also psychic uh so <laughs> it sounds cool on paper and it ends up looking pretty cool on the screen the the Robocop part, not the not the fail of the crashing truck. Um, so it doesn't end well, and um, Sarah unfortunately loses her life. Um, of course, this is the old an older trope. So it's goggles is mad that Sarah dies and decides to fight the super powered uh, armored cyborg. I don't think I'm forgetting anything important in there. Um, we are introduced to Chief Advisor uh, to the military, uh, Mashiba, who, I th it's not clear, I think he's um, maybe part of the company that is developing this um, cyborg suit uh, for military use. So it's not a con he's like a, a military contractor. Um, the, the cyber weapon is named Molkos. It's uh, uh, an acronym for Maintain of Law Cybernetic Organism Suit. I'm guessing the last one is um, the the trans the d DVD transfer. I'm watching of this was not the clearest, and they were they were using a lot of it's English, but something's a little off with it. So the part that at the end with the S uh, wasn't clear, and I'm just guessing it's suit, does that make sense? So Molkos is uh, deployed against Goggles in a, uh, I guess they would say it's a fair test. They give him, Goggles, uh, time to equip himself, and he, he brings a few weapons to the, to the party. And they're also fighting on a, I don't know if it's a replica, because it's, it's set in Oedo. But they're fighting on the Tokyo Tower. So I guess they built Oedo on the the remains of what had once been Tokyo. There's allusions and specifically in the 
third OVA that there was a city sort of underneath a lot of the um, technological advancements and the, the, the expanded cities. It's, it's sitting on top of another older city, which I'm guessing is Tokyo, because it's Tokyo Tower. Uh, or it was just something iconic and they just wanted to put it in there. So we have the climactic battle and um, in the ensuing combat um, goggles his you know, so <laughs> he's called goggles which is important to probably talk about this earlier uh, because he has cybernetic eyes so he has like a it looks just like a visor he's a a mohawked Geordie LaForge I guess maybe <laughs> but um, his eyes his robotic eyes are damaged in, in the battle and he's forced to rely on his other senses to combat this um, psychokinetic cyborg um, Molkos. Uh, and it probably is one of the, the neatest conventions here. The I'm not really going to go too far into describing Molkos. He has stretchy arms and some tubes. It's Robocop with rubber arms and legs. Actually, it's, it's pretty creepy. Um, he moves around a few times with his arms and legs fully extended in there. Uh, severely ill-proportioned Ill in, in comparison to a human. So the Uncanny Valley has been successfully breached um, in this design of Molkos. But uh, what they kind of do is... Uh, Gokkos is like crazy strong. Um, this is another example of show not tell so I don't I don't know if um, he has like other cybernetic enhancements it would make sense maybe um, aside from his eyes that maybe his arms and would have to be his back and his legs everything would have had to have been enhanced um, he picks up an iron girder uh, and smacks Mokos with it but uh, they're as they're on a tower um, the the impact of the metal on metal echoes um, throughout the structure and creates a specific frequency or a sound wave that um, is damaging to Molkos. Whatever that frequency is, it interrupts the um, control module uh, because, as as I didn't mention, um, in the in the comparison to Robocop, would end I guess with. Uh, a person having been damaged and they're outfitted with um, cybernetic parts uh, and in that way they are the cybernetic soldier. This, on the other hand, rather than experimental human subject, is um, all those all those corpses that we saw being trafficked um, earlier, all those body parts, um, have been assembled in a Frankenstein-esque way. They've reanimated in inside of a um uh, is it even a cyborg at that point so the dead flesh uh used to form the internal working components of this of this armor suit um i mean regardless the it's being controlled by the control module and with that with that frequency um interrupting it uh, Molkos is basically rendered um, immobile and uh, 
at this point. So <laughs> the armor is shrugged off, um, small arms fire, and then even the, the larger rifles that um, uh, Gogol's brings to the, the table when he's fighting him initially. Um, it's military-grade weaponry, and it's just, like, bouncing off the armor. Um, so as a further testament to Gogol's crazy strong superhuman strength that's a <laughs> that's silly uh he um when he, he when he stuns mokos he just runs up and punches it he punches the armor right off its body so why was he even using the guns and he could pick up a girder um but yeah he's just punching mokos and it's just crushing it and he i don't know he think he punch, punches his head in or something um it it got a little bit ridiculous it's like what you could have just done that from the beginning and this would have been a lot shorter um however that's not the end of it and our chief advisor mashiba um comes running in from the really far away test um observation platform that they were on i guess climbs the tower and um He's just shouting at Mokos to finish the job when Mokos has already been like pretty much destroyed. And uh, in by putting himself in close proximity to the blinded and crazy-powered um, goggles, he ends up you know, signing his own death warrant. And uh, Goggles picks up uh, one of the discarded bladed hands um from mokos and just throws it in it uh i think it just goes through um mashiba's like neck just kills him uh and that's basically the end of the uh episode so we've determined that goggles is super strong and has crazy hacker man skills so that's that's his entry in the uh ova of uh Cyber City. Uh, oh, wait, oh, wait, oh, wait. And that's, that brings us to our, our third and final um, episode. But before that, we'll take a short break uh, so I can get some more coffee. to as data data one two and three uh, crimson media uh, was released on october 4th 1991 so there's a little bit of a gap between uh, the release of episode two and three um we'll be comparing this with uh, the final like the climactic battle scene in um, vampire hunter d which had came out in 1985 so as we mentioned uh this is ben Ten's. uh Time to Shine. This is the episode that he's he's been thankful or <laughs> kindly graced with. Um, Benten. Uh, it's his alias, and this is Miro Yanagawa. Uh, he is the 
He's the youngest. He's 23. Um, yes. Single Google's 25. So he's 23, and um, the, the opening credits do take the time to show all of their... Um, their I don't think it's genetic markers. Um, it's their uh, their their heritage and uh, of the of the trio. Um, Benton's is um, it's half Japanese and um, half Caucasian. Um, so that probably plays a little bit into his uh, androgynous appearance. Um, he's he's very pale. Um, skin tone has great uh, floofy 80s hair and a little bit of uh, crimson lipstick or just has nice red lips, don't know uh, but he does have painted um, pointy fingernails uh, I don't know, it's kind of a sort of, sort of a gothic um, appearance if you were to take that to the other extreme and make everything like his whole wardrobe um, uh, it's all very light. Um, anyway, it's, it's uh, he's probably the most distinctive of the of the trio. Um, his prisoner file states that he was um, sentenced to two hundred ninety five years for murder, assault, forgery of currency, bonds, and data, breaking MC regulations. Don't know what that is, but he broke them. Um, forging identification, embezzlement damage to public property, space flight violations, and criminal law violations. So they're all, with the um, the exception of the breaking of MC regulations and space flight violations, um, it's all fairly similar to um, Benton and, uh, sorry, Singogu and uh, Goggles uh, rap sheets. In, um, in this episode, they... Uh, opens with um, a vampire a cyber vampire I guess um, committing terrible murders um, three bioengineers are killed uh, and the, the scenes of the crime are, are horrendous uh, the, all three of the, the victims have bite wounds on their neck um, they're they're making no bones about telegraphing. Oh, it's a vampire! And of course, everyone's a little bit dubious um, on that on that uh, wanting to believe that there's there's no precedent for a vampire existing um, in this far off future of twenty eight oh eight. But um, that doesn't mean that they're doubting it. Like all the signs point to it, so it must be the cybernetic vampire. And that's what it turns out to be, except for there's no cybernetic part. So this is the one where cyber crimes, they were like, there's no reason um, really to be sending one of these cyber crime specialists um, after a vampire um, because there's no cyber crime being uh, broken or cyber crime happening. Um, <laughs> maybe it's the victims. They're all bioengineers they're all scientists so by extension the murderer is committing some sort of cybernetic crime uh again ben, ben 10 does a lot of <clears throat> he does a lot more legwork than um sengoku or 
Goggles. Goggles is a a man of research. He'll do his um, his legwork is really book work, I guess. Um, and Sengoku just likes to rush in and like fight people, so he's like the brash uh, young one, even though he's not the youngest. And Goggles is taking that more mature approach of actually doing research before going after you know the criminal and Benton does the hits the street and goes and talks to people so it's a it's a nice nice that they separated each of them in that way uh, honestly if you just combined all three of them into one person you'd have like a pretty effective uh cyber crime detective uh, so instead of a team just one one good person that was effective um but i mean that's the point of this is to have three different people making up for the skills the other ones lack yeah, I'm, I'm guessing but uh oh <laughs> so benton he's doing his investigations and then he runs into actual cyber punks and it's great they're ridiculous. Um, they look like they stepped out of an old uh, cyberpunk RPG manual. They're literally punks, and they have some cybernetic attachments. So it's about as cyberpunk as you're going to get in this um, in this series. Uh, he makes short work of them. They appear to have potentially been hired to um, waylay Benten. And uh, in the process of war, once he gets rid of these punks, he runs into his old partner, um, whereas uh, Goggles had um, Sarah, his old hacker buddy. Um, Benton has his his old uh, old friend, and perhaps in Goggles' case, it appeared to have maybe also been a, um, a romantic interest as well, but um, that doesn't appear to be the case in uh, Benton's an old friendship. Um, this is Kelly and uh, she's. Well, I think someone had once, um, not not once, but recently mentioned um, Kelly is designed uh, as a character from the Dirty Pair. Uh, if if the character was portrayed by um, Bridget Nielsen, who would have been popular at the time in the in the early 90s and I don't uh, disagree with that that's what what uh, Kelly looks like I guess if you imagined um, uh, her character from uh, was it Rocky 3 um, and then just wearing like flashy silver uh, wrestling gear um yeah, she's pretty, I guess, interesting as a character design. Um, not, unfortunately, given very much depth. Well, given about as much depth as Sarah was given, which, again, wasn't uh, wasn't a terrible lot. They're, they're doing, I think, across the board, um, there's some disservice done to the uh, female characters in this. The, the guys are clearly the, the focus of the, the show. And, um, well, maybe if this was longer than a three-episode OVA series, uh, we, there would have been, there would have been, well, 
I don't even want to say that. They should have just done a little bit more development on the on the, the part of the female characters as well. Uh, they're just one-offs and notes to move the plot along, and that's um, that's a shame. Um, so anyway, Kelly warns him, uh, Benton, off the case. She's like, don't mess with this stuff. I'm, I'm handling it. Uh, and it turns out she's actually working for um, Sayonji Shuzo, who is the honorary chairman of the Sayonji Medical Foundation and the uh, the linchpin um, in the cyber vampire <laughs> um, case going on. Um, well, we're we're running a little long on the tooth on this episode, so I'll cut through some of the the ridiculousness that happens here. Uh, it turns out that the the vampire is a um, an unwilling participant in the Sionji Medical Foundation's experiments on uh, longevity. They the foundation operates a um, a cold storage uh, facility. It's um, those cold sleep capsules, and they are stored atop a space elevator in um, geosynchronous orbit uh, above the Earth. Uh, Benton finds this out, and uh, through his his exhaustive um, footwork and he stumbles across a universal access card. It's a, a little MacGuffin where it, and it, it allows the, um, the holder of the card to... It's a skeleton key. Basically, you can unlock any system with it. Um, he makes use of this to uh, ascend the elevator in the um, Sanji Medical Foundation building uh, to go check out uh, the, the cold sleep capsule. So... Uh, what led him to this was the the three bioengineers that had been killed in the, the beginning of the film all had um, pass, like a passcode sort of scrawled in blood uh, above their bodies. And what it turns out is that while the, the investigators were trying to crack this code, um, Ben 10 discovers that it wasn't a code in particular. It is actually the number of a cold sleep capsule, um, like a serial number. And he... He doesn't even find that, like, on purpose. It's sort of a happy accident. Um, he's he's inside the um, Sanji building due to some other tip that he had. I don't, don't remember, honestly. But he sees the... Um, is it a little building map? I don't know, the little index. He sees the thing, and, it's, and it says cold sleep capsule room or whatever and he the abbreviation uh, triggers his intuition and he thinks oh maybe that's actually a, a cold sleep capsule number that that we found so using his super skeleton key he uh, ascends the elevator and finds the um the cold sleep capsule room and also So he's he's in the building because he found um, a I think a tip uh, pointing to the the a woman named um, Masuda Remy, and 
that's whose cold sleep capsule he finds. Um, opening Upon opening the capsule, it's empty. And that's a problem because these are like eternal capsules. You're just supposed to be in there like forever. I um, mean, she had a degenerative um, cellular disease as well as anemia and something else, I think. But you're, people would pay to have themselves put into these capsules uh, in, in until uh, such a time that the um, a cure was found for whatever it ailed them. Uh, so they're effectively rendered immortal, um, whereas the actual Silent G Corporation wants an actual secret of immortality. So they, they decided to use this bank of um, experimental subjects, as far as they're concerned, to do experiments on. And um, Masuda Remy was one of those um, unwilling participants. However, she was the successful case um, for this immortality virus, which, um, it, uh, as a side effect, it boosts your psychic abilities that you that are latent, I guess, or just gives you them. Not sure, but it, um, what it as a side effect, it halts your blood production, thus making it uh, important that you secure living blood um, from somewhere else to stay alive. Your, your body itself won't age, but uh, it will just die because it's not producing blood of its own, I guess is what, what they're getting at. Um, and as Ben 10 is making this discovery, it turns out that there's a security measure um, <laughs> in the cold sleep capsule room. And what they've done is decided to clone saber-toothed tigers, maybe as part of some other experiment. I don't know. Um but two of the capsules open up and release saber-toothed tigers to ward off intruders. And, um, you know, Ben 10, uh, he, it makes his escape. But um, it's a little silly. Uh, I guess it's cool, maybe. It's silly. We'll go with silly. So armed with this information, he proceeds to try to track down um, Master Remy, who he had, he had met in, like, the cold open or briefly um it was all kind of a dreamlike scene uh painting benton in a light that's leaning pretty heavily on his um androgynous features and sort of uh his his outlook he's um he's concerned uh with astrology and um things of that nature so it lends him a little bit more of a mysterious air than the other um, the other two cyber criminal trackers, um, but he was interested in, in in Remy in the beginning, and this just further cemented that he didn't know who she was when they first met, and now he has a better idea, or at least he. I don't think he knows what she looks like, but he, but anyway, runs into her again and realizes that this was the girl that he had met in the in the beginning of the episode. And he decides to help her, or at least try to. Uh, it, it turns out that the, the men that she had killed, these bioengineers, it's kind of weird because they were working on a cure to the immortality virus. So when it says cure, um, I'm going off the subtitles, uh, unfortunately. What I'm thinking is there, it's curing not the disease, but the side effects of it. 
So to to benefit the um, Soundji Medical Foundation, or specifically the um, aging, decrepit chairman um, Soundji Shuzo, uh, the that cure would get rid of the negative aspects of the immortality virus, such as not producing blood, um, but still giving you the benefits of your unaging body and the crazy psychic powers. Um, that's my guess. Uh, and that didn't sit well with um, Remy. She doesn't want to be a vampire. She just wants to go home. But her home, as this is the part I had mentioned earlier, was um, a district in the city that had been... Uh, I think there was a war, maybe. I'm not sure, but it was, it was reduced to rubble. And they that's where um, Benton finds her is, is uh, sitting like on a riverbank overlooking the um, the district where her, her home used to be but uh, Sengoku shows up and uh, he he's trying to kill um Remy, and he's just like, it's a vampire, you know, she's just tricking you uh, to, to, to Benton, and um, Benton eventually just, he's not, um, he's not gonna put up with that, and um, he, he makes time for uh, Remy to escape, um, in, in the process, of course, uh, getting uh, Sengoku angry at him. Benton eventually uh, gets to a shuttle because um, Remy had gone ahead and taken the space elevator up to the uh, the cold sleep capsule area, which turns out isn't just the facility for the cold sleep capsules, but it's also the um, the chairman's like headquarters. I guess he just his office is up there. He just hangs out. Looking, looking down at the earth, you know, maybe it's a, it's gotta be a power trip thing, he just likes to be above everything, but, um, she goes there to, to kill, uh, the chairman, that's her, her goal anyway, and, um, Benton goes to stop her, he's provided, uh, well, this is where Goggles steps back in, um, Sengoku is about to, to capture, um, Benton, and prevent him from uh, ascending the the space elevator, but uh, Goggles had synthes he had managed to synthesize uh, a cure for the the virus um, using the data that they had collected from the notes uh, when they investigated the three crime scenes of the um, uh, the bioengineers. So that's I guess another. Um, uh, note in um, Goggles' book, he's also uh, a geneticist. <laughs> I guess he's—I don't know—he's able to 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 finish their experiment and also synthesize a working um, antidote to the virus. Um, but he he puts it in a little capsule, and they're uh, they're much—they uh, they do use these quite often, but they're uh, jute. Uh, he puts the serum in it and tells Benton he can use it as like a hyperdermic needle, um, which is weird because it's huge. Um, but you know, there you go. These uh, Jute are 
not only decorational, um, they're, they're very functional. Um, so that brings us to the, the final showdown of Ben 10 versus Shuzo. Uh, and this is where the, um, aside from the psychic vampires and some of the character designs, this is probably the most, uh, overt section. Uh, and I, I, draw comparisons to the, the the last 10 minutes or so of um, the Vampire Hunter D film with uh, D versus um, Count Magnus Lee. Uh, Shuzo has, in his mind, perfected the, uh, the virus. And he goes from a degenerative old man to a young, strapping huge guy I mean he looked because he wasn't a small man but he definitely was a much larger uh, fellow as a as a youngster um, and he he, I mean, he has that broad shouldered um, kind of slick back hair and looks like a younger version of, of Magnus Lee but uh they, you know, he's employing his psychic powers in the battle and kind of just tossing people. Well, he's tossing Ben 10 around and Remy also, who who tried to kill him but was unsuccessful. Her powers were eclipsed by his own. Um, it also turns out that Shuzo has crazy super regeneration. And, you know, uh, I almost don't want to spoil it. Um, I will anyway. Ben 10 tricks... Uh, Shuzo into getting sucked out of an airlock and it's it's a crazy scene he his body is floating in space and the, the power of the vacuum um like just causes him to um explode and he's rendered into just bits guts guts floating in space um but uh that doesn't stop Shuzo Shuzo can teleport um, he can regenerate from, I guess, the smallest piece of his body. So all of those um, gross entrails um, just vanish from the space and reappear back in his, like, for want of a better word, his throne room and just congeal again. Um, and then we're, we're granted with naked Shuzo battling <laughs> Benton. Uh, and here's where some of the, well, aside from the naked bit, um, here's where some of the parallels uh, are a little bit stronger. Um, Shuzo had originally been using a gun um, against Benton. Uh, right? Benton was using a gun? Benton was using a gun, I don't know. I, it's been a while since I watched it. But um, he does, he gets a sword down from the wall. So we have a kind of a sword, something that's sort of dual because the only one with a sword is Shuzo trying to kill Ben 10. Um, and that, uh, that parallels Magnus Lee, um, in his, his using the sword against, um, D. Uh, and that, I guess the tossing around of, um, both Ben 10 and, uh, Remy sort of, 
visually compared to um, D being thrown psychically against pillars and slightly earlier um, Magnus Lee uh, had crushed his own um, servant Ray uh, on a on a pillar uh, with a psychic throw just exploded his head um, that's pretty much it I mean the showdown ends as expected uh, with uh, Benton using his super hypodermic needle of the uh, jute to inject the serum into uh, into Shuzo originally I think he was intending to use it on um, on on Remy to cure her but uh, it didn't didn't turn out that way and while well, the, uh, the the serum works as advertised and just eliminates the um, regenerative regenerative um, capabilities of the virus so I guess this literally was a cure and uh, it just causes um, Shuzo to, to age dramatically and become a skeleton and die he's a little mummy man um, and then we we kind of finished the OVA episode with uh, well there's no cure it's been used on Shuzo so instead, um, and as a, a bookend to an earlier conversation between um, Benton and Remy, where they were talking about starlight being eternal and s- space being a, I don't know, a wonderful, quiet place to be, um, the only way that Remy can be like considered not a threat uh, by the cyber police um is if she's like exiled or just removed or killed or whatever but um so they opt they opt for option c and um he uh benton puts her in a cold sleep capsule activates the capsule and just like ejects it into space so she's floating forever through the void um in a in a capsule full of flowers it's very romantic, I guess, if that's your thing. Um, it's evocative. It's a nice, nice um, scene, and you could, you could say that it is uh, a nod, maybe to Life Force, um, space vampires in a capsule. That's it. That's a pretty good film. I, I do recommend that one. It's uh, it's sci-fi. It's not um, not an it's particularly. Um, Asian cinema, but uh, it uh, ties in, I think, with the the ending of this one. So I recommend that. Um, and Naked Vampires, it has that to go for it too. Uh, that that's pretty much it. This is a little bit longer of an episode, um, as I mentioned. So we're clocking in just uh, just shy of an hour and a half. Um, well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to me uh, discuss these uh, three OVA episodes and in. Uh, our, our next upcoming episode um, should actually be out later this week. We'll be taking a look at Wicked City, uh, both the animated film and the Hong Kong live action adaptation. Um, I was unable to get a hold of the book that it's based on, but from what I gather, that's probably for the best. Uh, I don't know. Well, uh, if anyone has an opinion to the contrary or can give a vote for that particular book, I'll, I'll, I'll try to take a look into it. Um, uh, and that wouldn't be for a little bit down the road. I don't think I have time to 
have it ordered and read I mean, in the space of a few days. But um, yes, look forward to um, episode two of season two will be Wicked City. So this was uh, Cyber City 08808. And uh, it, was a, it was a pretty fun little ride. Um, I do recommend watching these. I, I tried to leave out as much of the plot that wasn't particularly relevant to discussion, but still fun nonetheless. So there's some left over for you to, to check out if you uh, want to take a look at these. So in, in conclusion, I guess, if, if you'd like to contact me or send in anything to the show, um, you can reach me personally on Twitter at sentinot underscore plus. And you can reach um, the the podcast itself on Twitter at Rock Space Dandy. Um, send in your thoughts, uh, future questions, uh, or just uh, stop by and say hi. Um, that's us signing off for uh, this episode. And we'll see you next time on Hard Rock Saves the Space Dandy. <laughs>